Welcome, beloved listeners. My name is Olivia Shea, and I'm here with my colleague and co-host, Lenny Reinhardt. I am excited about this episode because it's the first of a three-part series about what I call the legal imagination. Now, these are two words you don't often hear together, but it's my opinion that now more than ever, the legal system could use a healthy dose of imagination. It's easy as a lawyer, or I should say an aspiring lawyer, to be bound up in the so-called objective and neutral principles that are so foundational to our legal system. But have you ever asked, are they actually objective? Are they actually neutral? And most importantly, can you imagine something different? I was first invited to think about my imagination the law when reading Derek Bell's book titled, And We Are Not Saved. He uses historical fiction to challenge us in the legal community to think about racism in the United States. Highly, highly recommended. But I won't say much more because you'll hear more about Derek Bell today in our conversation with Professor Randall Kennedy, a nationally renowned law professor and author at Harvard Law School. I have to say, Professor Kennedy, we are over the moon to have you here with us in this first conversation about legal imagination. Without further ado, Professor Kennedy, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Well, first, thanks so much for having me on. I look forward very much to our conversation. I am um, from Columbia, South Carolina. I was born in 1954, a couple of months after Brown versus Board of Education was handed down. Um, I moved with my parents in the late 50s to Washington, DC. We, my, my family, along with so many millions of other black families, we were refugees from the Jim Crow South. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up in Washington, DC. And then I went to a, a, a bunch of different schools. Uh, I went to law school at Yale Law School. Um, the most important thing that happened to me at Yale Law School was the, the, my summer job after my first year of law school. My summer job after my first year of law school was to work um, at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund at oh, 10 wow. Columbus Circle in Manhattan. And that, that was absolutely pivotal. Um, I, I enjoyed my first year law school, but frankly, I wasn't all that turned on by it. But uh, at the Legal Defense Fund, I was around great lawyers. We had very interesting cases. We were seeking to vindicate the civil rights of people. And that really lit a fire under me. Um, after, I, after law school, I clerked for a court of appeals judge, very interesting judge, um, Jay Skelly Wright, the United States Court of Appeals. Jay Skelly Wright was um, the first federal judge to order the desegregation of a school system in the Deep South. He ordered this desegregation of the New Orleans schools and it caused a real ruckus down there. He had to be put under armed guard. Uh, it was wonderful working for him. And then the next year I worked for a person who um, was one of my great heroes, um, the great Mr. Civil Rights, Thurgood Marshall. Oh, wow. And that was a wonderful experience. And then, and then after that, I uh, went to Harvard Law School to join the faculty and I've been at Harvard Law School ever since. Wow, that's an incredible um, combination of experience from the Legal Defense Fund to the Appeals Court. Could you yeah. share some of your experiences with Thurgood Marshall? Yes, let me, let me start off 
by talking about how it was that uh, I, I first learned about Thurgood Marshall. Mm -hmm. Thurgood Marshall's name was a it was a it was it was a name that was oft repeated in my household, and the reason why it was repeated so often is because my father went to see Thurgood Marshall argue a case in 1948. The name of the case is Rice versus Elmore. And that's, it's, that's an important case at this moment. I mean, we're, we're speaking while we're still trying to figure out who won the presidential election of 2020, right? Dear listener, pardon the interruption. Note that this episode was recorded prior to the announcement of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris being our president and vice president-elect. Now let's get back to it. Rice versus Elmore decided the question whether Black people had a constitutional right to participate in the Democratic Party primary in South Carolina. Prior to 1948, they could not participate at all. And a, and a man uh, by the name of uh, Mr. Elmore, George Elmore, my father knew him, challenged this. And Thurgood Marshall argued the case. And my father went to see, my father went to see the case, went to see Thurgood Marshall argue the case and talked about it. Now, check this out. The issue in the case was over state action doctrine. But that's not what my father talked about. My father talked about the fact that the judges in that case, the judges called Thurgood Marshall, Mr. Marshall. Now you might be wondering yourself, oh, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is that in 1948, under, the Jim, under Jim Crow etiquette down South, black men were not called Mr. If you were a, if you were a black physician, you might be called doctor. If you were a black minister, you might be called reverend. But if you were just an ordinary black man, no, you were not called, you were not called Mr. And, and by the way, you were not even called, you were not called by your surname. You were called by your first name. And so that my it, it meant a lot to my father that Thurgood Marshall had such stature, he was Mr. Marshall. And I heard about him, I heard about him throughout my life. And so when I was lucky enough to work for him, you could imagine, mm -hmm. you could imagine the thrill. And in fact, on my next, on my next to last day working for Justice Marshall, um, my father came down to the courthouse to meet Thurgood Marshall. Wow. And he talked about, he talked about seeing him in 1948. And it really, it brought tears to my eyes. I remember it. Uh, he talked about how important Thurgood Marshall was to folks, especially in the especially in the Deep South. Something would happen, something terrible would happen, and people would say, "Hold on, Thurgood's coming." And you know that's why for me, I, I, I've been you know I, I revere Thurgood Marshall. It's incredible, it really is. Um, you've described yourself as a legal realist, and I was hoping that you could say more about how that has shaped your perspective of the law. Sure. By, by legal realist, really all I mean is that the law is part of society. When you, when you, when you go into a courthouse, certain things change 
but certain things do not. You go into a courthouse, there's a, you know, you, 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 when you're training to be a lawyer, you, you, you learn a certain lexicon, you learn certain procedures, and, the, and all that's important. But when you go into a courthouse, you know, courthouses are, are part of society. And the same things that make people choose their friends, choose their lovers, choose their, you know, their, their significant others, their spouses, the same things that make people choose this person over another person as maybe an employee, um, all of the things that come into play in our day-to-day -day lives, in our decision-making, those things come in, those things play out in the law as well. That's all I mean. So in a, in a case, it may very well be that nobody says anything about race in the case, but might race matter? Sure, it matters. If it matters in regular life, it's going to matter in the courtroom. Right. That's, what, that's, that's all. I mean, it's, it's, it's no more, you know, it's, 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 uh, it, it's important to say because sometimes, sometimes people have the illusion, the delusion that the courts are way over there, separated from politics, separated from sociology. No, the courts are, the courts are thoroughly political. And by the way, I, I, don't, I don't say that to put the courts down. Frankly, I don't think that, it, that they probably couldn't be anything other. They are part of society. So who is, who is calling the shots matters. Absolutely. The, you know, the, so the, 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 that's all I mean. And so sometimes we have this idea of suggesting that there's this sharp distinction between um, the law and politics. We can see this in journalism, in our newspapers, for instance. Oftentimes mm -hmm. newspapers will say the political branches of government, and then they'll talk about the courts as if the courts were something completely divorced from politics. And of course, they're not. I mean, read the newspapers. Who, who, who appoints the judges? I mean, right. who, you know, who appoints the judges? Who ratifies the judges? I mean, politicians do. So they're, they're, it's inescapably political. Is it the same? No, it's not the same. The judges use a different language. They have different procedures. But are they influenced by what they read in the newspapers? Are they influenced? by what they watch on television? Are they influenced by their friends, by what people are saying around the, you know, the breakfast table, the dinner table? Of course. And I think that got brought up quite a bit uh, just in the recent confirmation hearings with Justice Barrett. Absolutely. I know that was, that was sort of in the background of a lot of the questions of the Senate. Sure. And one of the reasons why I think it's probably important to emphasize that, think about you know, think about what she said. Know her, you know, religious beliefs wouldn't affect her. Am I supposed to take that seriously? Uh, think of what think of what Justice think of what Justice Roberts said. Uh, the the judges are just you know just umpires. They're they they call balls and strikes. Am I supposed to take that seriously? Think of what Justice Thomas said. Justice Thomas talked about stripping down. And you know the, the the judge the judge strips down and you know sort of takes off the former raiments. 
Are we supposed to take that seriously? And Professor Kennedy, then I have to say, why why are we so committed to the illusion that they are that the court system in general is this objective, neutral, apolitical body? What what does that how does that benefit us? Well, it's a deep question that you ask, and I'm sure that one could write a nice long book about it. I think it probably comes from I think it probably has a good motivation and bad motivation. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the good motivation first. I think that the good motivation is a a yearning for the transcendence of our day-to-day struggles. Mm -hmm. You know, in in day-to-day, we know that people have their prejudices, their various biases, their various idiosyncrasies. We see that day to day and we know that. We know that about ourselves. We know that about our neighbors. But then when we go into the courtroom or when we engage in, when we, when we make the appeal to law, we, we, we really want to have something higher. It's almost, frankly, it's almost quasi-religious. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's quasi-religious. We want something above. And so that I think is the motivation and I can understand that yearning to tell you the truth. Now, I do think that there is another motivation. I think that the other motivation is a motivation that comes from people who know better, but they want to obfuscate. Mm. They, want, they want the general public to believe a myth. And so I think both of those things are going on mm-hmm. and they are very powerful. That's why they're very powerful and um, people wanna believe. You think about the courts, think about the, think about the courts, you know, the, the people wearing their black robes, they have their, you know, they have their, their, they have their rituals. The Supreme Court in particular, the Supreme Court, it's behind closed doors. It's not open to the public. All of that is an effort, I think, to uh, create a quasi-religious aura Mm -hmm. around the justices. The Supreme Court building, it looks like a temple. Yeah. Uh, There are various things that they do and now, by the way, the court is, is, you can see it, they're nervous. They're nervous because it's so obvious that politics is important. I mean, if politics wasn't so important, why, why did we have this speed up to, uh, to, to, to uh, confirm uh, the newest justice? Yeah. That happened in you know, record speed. Well, well, why? I mean, why, why was that so important if, if, if it was the case that it didn't matter who sat, well, then we wouldn't worry about whether this president or this president chose somebody. Obviously, it does matter. And I think that more and more people are seeing that. And I think that the court is probably going to try to work hard to recreate the aura of objectivity, the recreate the aura of being above politics. And I mean, I'm curious. I mean, COVID and this particular season in our country has challenged so many things that we have done always. And so I'm like, I'm curious, does it make sense for the court to recreate that sense of objectivity? I know people say that might delegitimize the court or, you know, lessen how we see them, but why not take this opportunity to like rethink? Well, to tell you the truth, 
I think we need to rethink a whole lot, not just, not just the Supreme Court of the United States, the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution. Again, we take this quasi-religious attitude towards the Constitution, but this year, I mean, 2020 has shown us quite clearly that, yeah, there's some, there's some good features of the United States Constitution, but there's some also some very bad features of the United States Constitution. Uh, I think that we need to think it through very carefully. Why is it that in this very moment, people, many people, many people, millions of people are worried, quite worried, and I think reasonably worried about the fundamentals of the, of, of, of American democracy. Uh, we have a system now in which the president of the United States, whoever is the president of the United States now, you know, I'm not going to make any bones about it. Uh, I hold in complete contempt, frankly, the president, president of the United States. But my point goes beyond the present president. We have a situation, we have a system now in which we have delegated to the president of the United States a huge amount of power. Huge. And, you know, we have made the United States vulnerable to a, 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 a type of authoritarianism that we need to rethink. We need to rethink the, the, the powers of the president of the United States. I mean, mm -hmm. you, think about, you think about the pardon power that's been, I mean, frankly, whoever, I took con law, when I took con, nobody paid any attention to the pardon <laughs> power. Now, I think people do. Uh, there are many things that have happened in the past few years. The past four years there are parts of the Constitution of the United States. I'm quite sure that nobody paid any attention to now we are, and I think we need to rethink that. We need to, we, we need to rethink the whole way in which we allocate the uh, political power in the United States. Right now, we don't know who's gonna be the next president of the United States, though right now, as we speak, it's quite clear that a majority, and I mean a majority of, America, of, of the electorate by a couple of million, a couple of million in the last election, Right. A couple of million people's votes were actually run, rendered, were, you know, meaningless because of the Electoral College. Well, we, we need to rethink this. <laughs> uh, we, we need to rethink, we need to rethink the whole question of, um, um, you know, sh should there be lifetime tenure for Supreme Court justices? Mm -hmm. Again, you know, I worked at the Supreme Court. I loved my justice. Do I think that people should have lifetime tenure? No, I do not. I think we could have judicial independence with some other way, you know, right. 15 years, 20 years, but lifetime tenure? Uh, you know, I mean, what, you're going to have a situation where you have people deciding you have people deciding things and the people are, are, are so old and so out of it. They don't really, they don't know about things that are, that are happening. It's not their fault. I mean, you know, it's not, seriously, it's not their fault, but 
these are things, and, and maybe, maybe we will come to the conclusion that no, we want to stick with the present system. Okay, but let's at least think about it. Right, I, think, right. I think lots of things need to be rethought at this moment because the past year has just shown us that uh, we, you know, our, our, our country is in trouble. Our country is in trouble in a very basic ways. Policing. Right. Policing. The police are the governmental agents that Americans come in contact with the most. You walk down the street and you pass by, bump into police officers. Now, these are people who have monopoly on power. They, wear, they, they, they are walking around with guns. They have the power to shoot people. Now, you know, I've, I've encountered police officers who've been wonderful. They have tough jobs to do. I understand that. Um, and I, I understand that. At the same time, uh, shouldn't people who walk around with lethal arms be regulated? In a in you know in a, in in a in a in a telling way in a real way, the way it is now, police officers can engage in abusive behavior with impunity. Yeah, Professor Kennedy, I want to interrupt you on that point yeah. right there, and I want to talk a little bit about the roots of the system. Like the system as it is, isn't accidental. No. Police officers walking around with impunity is not accidental. There are historical roots. Um, for the police system, their historical roots for why the court is the way it is, why the legal system espouses these objective principles. So talk a little bit about the roots of that. Well, I mean, you know, we, we live in a society that uh, has, you know, uh, we live in a society that has various hierarchies and there are various hierarchies. There's class hierarchies, there's racial hierarchies, there's gender hierarchies. There are, you know, sexual orientation. There's various hierarchies there, and we have long had, from the get-go, we have had a system in which certain people were put down, held down, marginalized, oppressed. Now, at the same time, fortunately, we've also had people who have fought against marginalization mm -hmm. and oppression. So American history is full of contests, struggles. Yeah. And we are still, we are, we are the inheritors of those struggles. The very the same struggles that people were engaged in, you know, uh, generations ago are struggles that we are engaged in now. Now after the Civil War, and after the Civil War, we had a second founding of the United States. Now, think about the, 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 your, your, your question about history is so important. Nowadays, when we talk about the Constitution, right? When we talk about the Constitution, well, the, like the 1619 Project, a lot of controversy and people are talking about the Constitution. What do people talk about? They talk about the first founding. 
When you say founding fathers, who are people talking about? They're talking about George Washington. They're talking about Ben Franklin. They're talking about uh, you know, John Hancock. They're talking about the founders of 1787 or in 1789. That's who they're talking about. They're not talking about the founders of the second founding. People don't even know their names. People don't, Thaddeus Stevens. People don't know anything about any Thaddeus Stevens or Birmingham or Charles Sumner. They don't know about those people. Those were the people who put onto the constitutional regime the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments. And the promise of the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments was a new constitutional regime. On, and, and, for a, and for a small moment, we saw the flowering of the new regime, but it was, it was ruthlessly smashed. And we've actually been trying ever since, you know, ever since the late 19th century, we've been trying to um, resuscitate the second founding. We still haven't succeeded, but we need to be aware of the second founding, the promise of the second founding. We need to be aware of maybe what we could do to um, actually bring into being the promise of the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments. The 13th amendment, the 13th amendment potentially mm -hmm had a lot of power behind it. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court of the United States and other courts have interpreted the 13th Amendment very narrowly. They've interpreted the 13th Amendment merely to, you know, with, with some exceptions, but largely the idea that the way the Supreme Court has interpreted the 13th Amendment is 13th Amendment just struck the manacles off of the formerly enslaved. If you, if you, you could interpret the 13th Amendment much more broadly, uh, certainly people in law schools have advocated that, but thus far the judiciary hasn't gone along with that. Right. But your point is that, you know, we, we, we need to know our history because we are, we, we're in struggle. We're, yeah. we're, we, we are struggling with the unfinished, work of past generations. Mm -hmm. Past generations tried hard. I mean, you know, Thurgood Marshall and, 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 and Martin Luther King and Roy Wilkins and, you know, Rosa Parks and Fannie Lou Hamer, they were heroic and they did a lot. And we are the beneficiaries of their struggles, but they did not fully succeed. We can't, you know, they, they, they tried hard, they did the best they could, but they did, not only did they not fully succeed, but in our own time, we have witnessed rollback. Yeah. We really have. And it makes me think about what you talk about in your article with Derek Bellamy and his assertion that Black folks will be permanently subjected to a state of marginalization and oppression. Well, you know, I have for most of my life disagreed with that position. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, and I, I think that there's sort of, there are two camps 
Um, there, there are many camps, but I want to focus on two. One is the pessimistic camp, and, De and, and my colleague uh, and friend Derek Bell was in the pessimistic camp. By the way, just for your, you know, for your listeners, Derek Bell was a very distinguished civil rights attorney, worked for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, mm -hmm. worked on a variety of important cases. He, wanted, he was one of James Meredith's attorneys, for instance. James Meredith was the black man who uh, desegregated uh, uh, Ole Miss. Uh, Derek Bell, distinguished civil rights attorney. He went into legal academia. He was the first black tenured professor at Harvard Law School. And it was in that context that I got to know him. Derek Bell, you're absolutely right. He basically, if you ask the question, shall we overcome? Mm -hmm. Shall we be a multiracial society in which equal, racial equality reigns? Derek Bell said, alas, the answer is no. He didn't say, he said, that doesn't mean that we give up the struggle, we fight. Um, and he thought that we needed to continue the struggle mainly for spiritual reasons. He was a deeply spiritual man. But he, he, his view was that white supremacist ideas, white supremacist habits was so ingrained in the United States that he, 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 he thought that it was, it was here to stay and mm -hmm. that it would not, we, we, we could not uproot it. He's not alone. I mean, you know, if, if one goes through American history, who, who else believed that? Well, you know, to a lot, for much of his life, Malcolm X believed that. Uh, for, you know, Marcus Garvey believed that. Uh, Henry McNeil Turner believed that. Um, there are other people who believe that, by the way. There are white people who have believed that too. Um, Abraham Lincoln believed that. Thomas Jefferson believed that. Alexis de Tocqueville believed that. That's the pessimistic tradition. Mm -hmm. Now there is an optimistic tradition. In the 19th century, the great voice of the optimistic tradition was uh, the most eloquent slave or former slave in the history of the world, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was an optimist. He was asked, and even before the 13th Amendment was ratified, he was asked, do you foresee a time in the United States when, when um, uh, people of color and white people will live together as neighbors and as equals under a common government? And he answered, yes, I can see that. I can foresee that. So he was an optimist. In the 20th century, the great optimist would be Martin Luther King Jr. Absolutely. In the 21st century, among African-Americans, the most influential optimist would be Barack Obama. Now, you know, I don't, I, I don't rank with those people, but I would put myself in the optimist camp, though I have to say that what has transpired in the last few years has chastened me. Mm. I am no longer as confident as I used to be. And I, 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 I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply sorry about that. I, I wish that I didn't have to say that, but what has occurred has made me reconsider 
I, I think I'm still an optimist, but frankly, I know that part of that has to do with my longing and my hopes on behalf of my children and just young people. I, 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 I'm, I'm an optimist almost, I'm a willed optimist. You know, I just, you know, my, my heart is so, you know, I, I, I so much hope that the people of, of your generation and the generations following you will be able to, to live in a better America. I so much hope that. Out of that sentiment, I'm in the optimistic camp, though I see what has happened in the past few years and frankly, I did not think, I did not think, I was wrong. I did not think that what has transpired would transpire. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I, I wrote that. I wrote that. I mean, I, I did not think that politicians who were ambitious politicians who wanted to be elected, I did not think, let's say, you know, six years ago, that a politician who was ambitious would be able to say things that politicians are saying today and they're being and, and they're being followed they're getting support it's you know it's their ticket to higher office six years ago when i said oh no we don't have to worry about that that's part of that's 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 a dead part of our history well i was wrong one thing that ties into this like you mentioned we're still waiting for pennsylvania and georgia to finish their votes but Olivia and I were talking earlier about Kamala Harris. She was mm -hmm. selected to be the VP. She's an accomplished legal mind. However, often in the debate, when she was in the debate about her becoming vice president, it was reduced to, hey, look, she can secure the black vote. Yeah. So you have this tremendous career, but then it's just reduced to how she can affect the election. So I was wondering, how do you see that sort of mindset evolving to something greater? Well, yeah, I'm, gl I'm glad that you mentioned the, uh, the, 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 the vice presidential standard bearer because, you know, it's, it's a complicated thing. On the, on the one hand, again, I, I feel quite saddened that at this moment, we're looking, you know, every 15 minutes to see the latest and we're, you know, we're biting our nails. Frankly, the fact that that's true is an indictment of our country. Mm. The fact that this election is close is an indictment of our country. I mean, after all, the, you know, President Trump has shown himself not only to be incompetent, not only to have cruel policies, I think of you know, the separation of parents from children at the borders, but an out and out open racist. I mean, I mean it's, there's no two ways about it. That a person with this record can get upwards of 60 million votes in the United States of America, well, is for me, that is deeply saddening. At the same time, at the same time, I'm so glad, you know, 
the Democratic Party's standard bearers, Joe Biden, and here you have Kamala Harris, if they prevail, Kamala Harris will be the first black woman vice president. Well, that's, you know, that's something. Uh, five years ago, there was a, you know, African-American who was president of the United States and was elected twice. This year, there are more black people vying for seats in the Congress of the United States than ever before. In Georgia, in Georgia, it is what and what. It is, it is a, it's a horse race. And you know what? I stand and salute those people in Georgia. In the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a pandemic, people found a way to vote. I mean, it's, and, and so, you know, sometimes, I, yeah, I've already said I, I, I'm, I'm down, I feel deeply saddened, but I'm also inspired. I'm also inspired. Uh, they were, you know, they were, they were ordinary folks who stood in lines, found a way to vote. There were activists. Um, what's the name of the activists in Georgia? The, uh, the, the, the black woman who probably won the gubernatorial election. She was Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams. I mean, she, as far as I can tell, as far as I can tell, there's a good argument to be made that she won the governorship fair and square, but that chicanery, you know, the chicanery came into play and she was denied the office. Okay. She then turns around and gets herself together and develops an organization to go out and get people voting, get people registered. And we are now seeing that come to pass. I mean, I stand in salute. I stand in salute. Though people like her and ordinary folks who braved the pandemic, you know, on election day, there were lots of places. It, it, was, it was scary. People didn't know what was going to happen, yet they got out there and voted. And so, you know, the struggle goes on. The struggle goes on. We, we, we face a lot. We face reaction. We face racism. At the same time, we have a history that we can turn to. There are people who have struggled before, mm -hmm. and there are people who are struggling now. And, you know, the struggle goes on. I read yeah. that her organization, I think it was 800,000 voters that they got registered. And now the margins in Georgia are like a small fraction of that. Yeah. So it's, it's incredible. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think, you know, remember, you know, let me put a point on it by this. Let me go back to history again. Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it? It would be a Black man who would be the replacement in the United States Senate of the senator representing Mississippi who became the president of the Confederacy. Remember, Jefferson Davis hmm. resigned his seat in the United States Senate to become the president of the Confederate States of America. The Confederate States of America lose in their effort to secede from the Union. They are defeated after the Civil War, Mississippi, when Mississippi comes is, is allowed back into the Union, they have to, you know, figure out who's gonna who's gonna represent Mississippi. 
Who does the legislature pick but Hiram Revels? Hiram Revels was the first Black American in the Congress. He took the seat of Jefferson Davis. Again, who'd have thunk it? So things look, you know, we're, we're in a tough position, but we have to keep battling because, you know, who'd have thunk it? You know, you, you, we don't know. We don't know. We've got to just try and do our best. And to that point, Professor Randall, I'm always thinking um, my ancestors imagined me. And so who am I to, to, re, to decide that, you know, this fight is no longer worth fighting? Absolutely. Absolutely. Would people of an earlier generation even thought possible the conversation that we're having right now? Right. They wouldn't have. No, no, wouldn't have. And yet, yet we're having it. And we're having it because people banded together and engaged in heroic, intelligent, and persistent protest and organizing. They did what they could do. Mm-hmm. And there's something for everybody to do. I mean, you know, if you okay in the law field, fine. If you're in the if you're in the in the if you're in the entertainment field, fine. If you are a member of the clergy, fine. If you are in a union, fine. There is work everywhere to be done because of course the problems that we confront are everywhere. And and to that point, one thing that I I believe is some of that work requires us to imagine anew. And I I take um, Derek Bell's work um, his fictional stories. And he, he presents us with all these impossibilities in his chronicles. I think that Professor Bell was very imaginative. I think that his use of, I mean, you know, in a, in a, in a certain sort of way, he was engaging in very typical law professor activity, right? Hypotheticals. <laughs> he was he was creating stories. He was creating hypotheticals, and they make us think, and they make us think hard. Um, I would say to folks, okay, and I think Professor Bell, he pushes us, and I think he tells some, I think he tells us some realities that we might, you know, sort of want to shrink from. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I've already said I've I, I've dis, I disagree, and sometimes I've disagreed very strongly with Professor Bell. But I've got to say, I've got to say, upon you know, in the last few years, uh, I've reread some of his work, and I've had to say, you know what, he was upon rereading. I have to give him more credit than I had previously given him. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and that's just the way things have worked out. At the same time, I would say to people, okay, use your imaginations, but let's try this. Let's try to use our imaginations in a different way as well. Let's, let's try to imagine, let's try to imagine what we want. Mm-hmm. This is something I've been thinking about. Um, we, we, because of our circumstances, we spend a lot of time talking about what we don't want. You know, we don't want slavery. We don't want segregation. We don't want various sorts of invidious discriminations. We spend a lot less time talking about what we do want. What, what would, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., the day before he was murdered, 
Martin Luther King Jr. said, I've been to the mountaintop. I've glimpsed the, 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 the promised land. I might not get there with you, but I've glimpsed it. I would say to folks, he didn't tell us what the boundaries of it were. He didn't tell us what the topography was. He didn't, you know, I say to folks, let us think about that. Let's think about what, what do we want? What would be entailed with reaching the promised land? What, how, how do we want to feel? What are the feelings that we want people to have when they reach the promised land? How would we address one another in the racial promised land? What would be the allocation of political power in the racial promised land? Those are things that I think we ought to think about and we should sort of, and let's be free in our thinking. Let's say, you know, forget the present constitution of the United States. Let's imagine that we all got together and we were just, writing on a blank slate. What, what would we want? I think we need more thinking of that sort. That is all from us here at The Podvocate. Thank you for joining us today. And our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want our show to cover, an event you would like us to address, or just something you are passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. The managing editor is Radhika Sutherland. And our associate editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leon Jossend, and Lenny Reinhardt. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue De Novo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.